Hey, Rockheads. The Norwegian Developers Conference is once more coming to London, December 1st through the 5th. Come hang out with Richard and me in the fishbowl while hobnobbing with such celebrities as John Skeet, Don Syme, Scott Allen, Denise Jacobs, Damian Edwards, and many more. That's NDC London, December 1st through 5th. Check it out online at ndc-london.com. And save yourself 200 pounds on a three-day conference pass and 300 pounds on an all-access pass if you register before October 15th. We'll see you in London. .NET Rocks, Episode 1037. Recorded Thursday, September 11th, 2014. Hey, guess what? It's a geek out. It is indeed. It's going to be epic from what my friend Richard Campbell says. How are <laughs> you, man? Um, you know, I'm good. I'm a little tired of thinking about cold fusion, but... Yeah. One, well, one more pass through your brain and you yeah. think you've got it nailed. It's really funny. It's Of all of the fusion shows, this is the most complicated. Let me tell you what I've been doing. Yeah. For something totally different. I started working on the actual music for Music to Code by my Kickstarter. I'm so excited about this pub. Yeah, and I started, as any good person would, by doing research. Nice. And I actually spent a couple hours online trying to figure out what the world considers good music to focus by and to think by. And overwhelmingly, I found people citing 60 beats per minute as the magic number of tempo. That's pretty slow. Yeah. and in, music. And in particular, Baroque classical music. Interesting. Because it has that repetitive, you know, you know, like right. the Bach fugues and stuff. It just sort of rambles and it goes along and it has a clear path from note to note. You know what I mean? Right. Um, sort of like thoughts and neurons. So that's sort of where I'm at. But of course, I'm not doing any Baroque music. But, but it, even uh, for non-classical music, 60 beats per minute seems to be what uh, people are saying is focusable music. And if you want to relax, 30 to 50 beats per minute. And this is for adults. Obviously, if you want kids to focus, you got to be in the 30, 40, 50 range. Interesting. Yeah, because their brains are a little slower, right? Sort of begs the idea, should we just do a geek out about music to code by when you're done? Well, that's not a bad idea. I mean, it, you, could, the whole story together. you could consider this a little one just on my research. Just so, a teaser. Well, we've talked about this for a while, but, you know... How many times have I pinged you as I was working on this Cold Fusion notes and said something and went, oh, my God, and then moved on? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You just got to get, get the ick out. Yeah. As as Kelly likes to say. No, I get I get rant. There, the number of times I've gotten ranting as I've read more and more of the stuff that happened around Cold Fusion, the crazier it made me. All right. Well, before we get into that story, we have a little better know framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? All right, so as you know, I'm getting into uh, professional streaming, yes. video streaming and all that stuff. And uh, it's funny that my local uh, school, the, the middle school where my youngest goes, daughter number four, I like mm -hmm. to call her, She, uh, her music teacher called me and said they want to do a sort of a video cast or a TV station, radio station at the school. Right. I said, cool. And of course, you know, they, their funds are limited. So I looked up, I know about Ustream. Yep. 
you know, but, and of course there's Google Hangouts and stuff, but they wanted something with a little more, um, I don't know, uh, you know, a little more control, I guess. So I looked at Livestream and Livestream.com is like Ustream. In other words, it's a a place where you can broadcast from your camera, your webcam, whatever, and actually have events and things like that. And they actually sell hardware as well. But that's another story. Right. At the very lowest level, their $49 a month offering is for unlimited streams. For fifty bucks a month, yeah. Here's the deal: it's camera only, right? There's you can you have like a you can use your desktop as a source, and you can use a camera, and there's a couple of different shots you have, right? But you don't really have a whole lot of control as to what goes out. So, for example, if you wanted to superimpose one image on another, if you right. wanted to superimpose a shot from your webcam with your head against the green screen, you know, keyed on top of your video, you can't do that. If you want to put graphics. And have you know like a uh, a graphics uh, semi you know transparent cutout graphics okay. superimposed? You couldn't do that either. So and that's just with the you know the standard stuff. Ustream, however, I was really really impressed with Ustream Producer, and I started started to think. Now this is the app that they uh, they have three versions of it that you can go free, studio, or pro. Right. And I, I began to think. Oh, I've seen this before. And it's it's essentially they bought Wirecast, and Wirecast is an app that I used on the PC, um, on Windows machine, to do this kind of thing. And it works with typically you connect some Blackmagic intensity thing to it, or if you have a FireWire port, you plug right. a FireWire camera into that for older cameras. That's what I used to stream your uh, humanitarian toolbox keynote from the day of .NET in Dallas. Right, right. That's a while ago. Yeah, that was Wirecast. So it's very it's it's very cool in that you have multiple shots. You can layer them. You can turn them on, turn them off. You have keying, chroma keying, right. which is, you know, against a green screen. So there's a uh, – I'm, I'm very, very impressed with Ustream. And I actually ended up um, uh, suggesting Ustream over Livestream just because the interface is so clean, so professional, and so easy to use and understand that kids would get it. Right. Whereas the live stream stuff that's sort of like a, a flash thing, it's I think it's a flash thing. It's a sort of an afterthought and not at all very intuitive. Hmm. So that's my recommendation today is that if you're going to do streaming, just go to Ustream. You pay a little bit more money for it. But you get a better product. You get a better product. For gotcha. 99 bucks, you can pretty much do what you want to do. Awesome. Yeah. And that's it, man. Ustream versus Livestream. So uh, who's talking to us, Richard? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 900, and that's the one we did over a year ago at that conference on automated driving. Yeah, that's right. That was the that was the wake-up call. In fact, that's the first time I heard about Uber. Yeah. Well, you had that all that conversation just as a way to think about it. And it, so much has happened in a year with automated driving, it's almost time to revisit it. I yeah, swear. I think you're right. And this is, and this actually refers to that because Dave Shaw left this comment shortly after the show was published. He said, Hi guys, I only just started listening, but I've really enjoyed the last few episodes. I've even gone back to listen to 732. And 732 is the original electricity show, right. which was the first for me, the point where I'm like, Okay, this has become a weird thing, the geek outs. Right. Because that was a show that got derived, right? That was not, and nobody was asking for that. It was when we were trying to organize how to talk about alternative energy. It's like, let's do fundamentals of, of electricity to f- help sort this out. 
Yeah. And then, and that's when, yeah, once my head gets into that space of thinking and story arcs and things, then you know you're in trouble. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but Dave went on to say, uh, I think the only missing angle from this geek out would be the impact on today's non-drivers. My wife doesn't drive, and an autonomous car as a service, she would be able to call one up and get herself to shops with the children or while I'm out at work. But right. it's not just those that choose not to drive. What about children? Think huh. about this, dude. Like, what if you just, what if you could just put your kids in a car to take them to school? You don't have to go. I've thought many times about that, that yeah. children that want to go over to their, you know, friend's house, that they don't have uh, a parent who can drive them. It's right. great. And maybe they want, they need permission from you. Yeah. They, 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 I, I want to take the, I want to take a car over here. It's just really interesting to think about that. And same with elderly, disabled. What about pets? Absolutely. You want to take your pet to the groomer? You just call up a car, put the cat, pet in the car, car goes to the groomer, group pulls the cock out of the car. It truly does revolutionize things. And I thought about this some more, and you're right, this is turning into another geek out. But yeah. I, I, my thought was that it's it could totally revitalize the urban experience right. and, and change the way that people go out because... A lot of people, let's face it, ever since, you know, drunk driving became a real problem, yep. entertainment has gone, you know, down. Like, has, they, has you, don't, a problem. You, you don't see bands in bars. And I don't think it's because um, people don't like the bands. I think it's just because it, there's so much friction around going out to have a good time and getting home safely. Right. That it's just not worth it. First of all, because parking goes away, yeah. because drunk driving is never a problem. I mean, nope. these, these, you could just go somewhere and, hey, car, come on back. Come take me home. Yeah. It's, if you can use an app and push a button, you can get home. That's what I love about this revolution. So one of my favorite descriptions, and I don't remember who exactly this was, but he said, if you're thinking about autonomous driving, in relation to cars today, you're in the same position as a guy with a horse and carriage thinking about cars then. Right. We have no conception, and even I'm really struggling with what the car is going to look like once it's an automated driving vehicle. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a radical change. And we're, you know, automated driving is real. It exists today. You know, now there's just, can we produce it efficiently? Can we get the laws in place to make it make sense? Mm. You know, this these transformations are going to happen over the next few years till it becomes prevalent. Right. And then there'll be the second wave transformation, which is why do the vehicles look like this? Why do they work like this? Yeah. All of that stuff starts going away. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Dave tipped us on a good one a year ago. And uh, we may have to revisit this, give it a little more time, just a few more things coming up and we'll be back at that. So Dave, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And before we get started here today, let me tell you that Coder Camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys will help you get the skills you need to get hired in just nine weeks. Everybody who's graduated in the last year that been in business has been hired within 90 days, and now they've made it even better by letting students attend camp online. Check them out at CoderCamps.com. Well, Richard, where do we start today? Do you think Cold Fusion's real? No, and I'll tell you why. If it was real, we would know. It's probably the most important leap ahead that we could possibly take as humanity in tech terms of technology. And if there was any reality to it, we would all be running it. We would know. There would be a lot more news about it than there is now. So I'm very, very skeptical. 
I, and I appreciate your skepticism. That is wise. The problem is that the word cold fusion is so loaded. Because when you, the way you just described it and your reaction to it, I think is the norm, which is cold fusion as a power generation source. Yes. Right? right. That's what most people think about. Right. In all the research I've done here, I have found a variety of ways to fuse atoms together at low temperatures. Okay. Okay. And when you mean low temperatures, you mean not, uh, you mean room temperature room and a little higher. temperatures. So let me tell you, uh, let me tell you one kind of fusion that is absolutely real. There's nothing weird about it. It's well documented. It's muon catalyzed fusion. Muon catalyzed, catalyzed fusion. Isn't that a great name? I muon, love it. I walked around the house for almost a day saying muon catalyzed fusion. I'm going to have a new bumper sticker that says MCF on the back of my car. <laughs> so first, what's a muon? What's a muon? So a muon is a very unusual uh, subatomic particle. It has exactly the same characteristics as an electron. So the negative charge, spin behavior, all of that same, right. same stuff. But it's 200 times more massive. So it's a very, very heavy electron. It's lighter than a proton, but still very heavy in, in the context of an electron. Now they're rare. Yeah. Right. They, they, well, rare is sort of a funny concept. They generally come from cosmic rays and things like this, and they are very short lived. Uh huh. What does very short lived mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's relative. The mean lifetime of a muon is 2.2 microseconds okay that's pretty short now that's 2.2 <laughs> millionths of a second which is again so and we how many times have we got people commenting on on uh values and ranges and units right so just to put what a, a millionth of a second really represents if i said wait for me for one million seconds how long would you be waiting for me yeah i don't even know i mean i'd have to do the math yeah it's 11 and a half days okay Okay? Yeah. So, now take that the other way around. A millionth of a second is to a second as a second is to 11 and a half days. Got it. Okay? This is a really short amount of time. Yes. But a muon has the behavior of an electron. So, every so often, if you do some clever tricks with a muon, you can have it replace an electron in a hydrogen atom. So I guess the key to that would be to have a stream of muons so that mm. it looks like a lot of, uh, or just one long-lived muon, perhaps. Well, I mean, the reality is it's not going to be long-lived, but if you put enough of them into an environment like deuterium and tritium, mm -hmm. right, so that the heavy isotopes of hydrogen gas, and you put enough muons into the space, they will on occasion replace an electron with a muon. Now, oh, that's what happens when a muon becomes the falls into the electron role? Does it actually live longer than your typical muon? Nope. Still short-lived. But it's this, an electron. But it acts like an electron, but it's actually a muon. So it's, it's mass. I get this. So because it acts like an electron, right. it has the ability to uh, transfer power. And also to orbit around a nucleus of a hydrogen atom. Sure. But it's way more massive. Right. So what happens when a more massive electron orbits a nucleus? It orbits much closer. Yeah. And because it orbits much closer, it pulls nuclei together. So hydrogen tends to be diatonic. It likes to be in pairs, right? It's always H2. 
Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. So when you get a deuterium atom and a tritium atom together, and a muon gets in between them, it literally can pull them almost to past the Kalum force point. So that with just a little bit of energy, they will fuse. Okay. And become helium. And become helium. Right. So, and let us not undermine the magic that is transmutation. Oh, of course. Right? Yeah. So, but that's the reality, is that in muon catalyzed fusion at relatively low, you know, ambient temperatures, ambient pressures, ambient reasonable energy levels, given an access to muons, and in that, by the way, in that 2.2 microseconds of the average lifespan or mean lifespan of a muon, yep. it'll do that 100 to 200 times on different atoms. Okay, now we're getting somewhere, Richard. Right. Let me put my thinking cap on and say that because we have this little fusion thing happening and becoming right. helium, are we getting the same kind of fusion that happens in the sun? Like a big yes. burst of energy fusion. Well, and so when every, the, the whole point about making power with fusion and all the methods that we've talked about so far is that when you fuse these heavy hydrogen isotopes together, they tend to spit out a neutron, which then breaks down and emits a gamma ray, and a, which is a fair bit of energy. Okay, and okay, a fair bit is what, an understatement, perhaps. Well, it's you know we're ta- you're only talking a hundred to two hundred atoms undergoing fusion per muon mm. in optimal conditions. Okay, so it's not a massive amount of power until you can get enough muons together. But this is this was figured out in the fifties. This is a known set of technology, and it can be run. The experiments are completely reliable. If there's anything you learn from talking about cold fusion, it's how to do reliable experiments. Right. The experiments are completely reliable. Why isn't this a big deal? Yeah. And, okay, so you basically just said that cold fusion is real. That's basically what you're just saying. Yes, except what I said, low temperature, what they, you know, often they call this like low energy nuclear reactions because the word cold fusion is so loaded. Uh, This muon catalyzed fusion is a low energy nuclear reaction. Wow. So why isn't it? famous why isn't it a big deal right because it takes a lot more energy to make muons than the amount of energy you get out of the fusion of course that's why and that's and that's the whole problem with power in general what most people think of as oh if we only had this we could create power and most of these experiments and discoveries require more power in than power comes out and not to give away the ending of the show but remember this Every single fusion experiment ever done, ever, it took more power to make it happen than what came out. Got it. Period. That's the nutty part about fusion. So it's real, it's just not efficient. It's not useful. Useful. So let's go back to 1989, because you and I were alive then. Yep. And I remember this in the news. And the, what's really interesting about looking at this today is how much it reminds me of the behavior of society yeah. in these days. And it was very unusual in those days. Yeah, and I know what you're talking about. You're th- talking about everybody thought these two guys had figured out cold fusion at room temperature. Turns out they were full of uh, baloney. It's more complicated than that. It's not that simple. Okay. It never is. I wish it was that simple. <laughs> All right, let's hear the story. So let's talk about Martin Fleischmann. Okay. Now, Martin Fleischmann is, uh, has passed. He died in, in 2012. Uh, uh, 
a great scientist, won a ton of awards. He's an electrochemical scientist, mm -hmm. okay? Which is important because generally when you talk about fusion, you're talking about nuclear physicists. And here is an electrochemical scientist. And he had, he invented new technology. He made a thing called an ultra microelectrode in 1980s. Yep. He, uh, he won the Palladium Medal. He was a fellowship in the Royal Society. This is a serious scientist. Yeah. Like, this guy was, uh, University of Southampton. He was an amazing, one of the best electrochemists in the world. Wow, wow. Okay. He's also very aware of the powers of palladium. Mm-hmm. Now, palladium is, in the platinum group of metals, it's a very unusual metal. Okay. It's got a characteristic unlike any other metal All that right. we know of today. All right. It's permeable to hydrogen. I now, see. think about this. This is a silvery, solid metal. Yeah. But if you... Take a pressure vessel and put this metal in it and then put a bunch of gases, some of which is hydrogen, on the other one side of it and pressurize it. The hydrogen will go through the palladium. And that is very unique in the it's world totally of metals. That's like Star Trek's unique. That's yes. like transporter. <laughs> Not just any old hydrogen. We're talking about monatomic hydrogen. Okay. Right? Which is rare. No, you, you have to heat up the palladium. The monatomic hydrogen will come through it because normally hydrogen likes to pair up. Mm -hmm. As soon as you add a, a neutron to it and make it deuterium or two neutrons and make it tritium, it won't pass through palladium. Mm -hmm. So, and he was a specialist. He knew palladium very well. And there had been and are documented evidence of strange heat events involving the electrolysis of hydrogen and palladium literally for 100 years. Okay. And so this apparently was one of Fleshman's pet projects. He always was interested in that for a long, long time. And he bumped into a guy, actually Stanley Pons is the other guy involved in this, younger, about 15 years younger than Fleshman, also an electrochemist. And he was based out of the University of Utah, although it sounds like these guys met several times over the years. I mean, there's only so many electrochemists in the world. Right. Right? Yeah. And electrochemists are... Specialists, these guys specialize in the mixture of electrolytes, so chemicals in a solution, and metals, sometimes platinum-type metals like platinum and palladium and so forth, uh -huh. and passing electricity through them. That is what electrochemistry is. And electrochemistry, make no mistake, is wildly important. It's been around for a long time. It's been around for hundreds of years. But every battery you've ever used was invented by an electrochemist. Right. Right. That is one of their most important businesses. Right. But when you talk about chrome plating and separation of, of elements in general, that's electrochemistry. Right. You know, one of the most common ways to derive pure elements, which is a really hard thing to do, is using electrolysis. And so I don't want to say anything bad about this science. It's important. We use it all of the time. Fleshman had this idea that there was something powerful in palladium for a very long time, but he worked very much in secret on it for a long time. In 1983, and the timing on this is important, 1983, he confides in Pons that he thinks he can do fusion mm -hmm. with palladium. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he, and he used those words apparently to actually talk about that. And so, in 83, they start working together. They are self-funded. They spend 100000 of their own money. Okay. Which is not a lot of money to do research with. Right. To 
build a machine that could do this fusion. So now when you're working in electrochemistry, you use a thing called a kilometer, right? And this is a basically a bottle with instruments on it to measure things like heat, right? Because mm -hmm. most electrochemical reactions have some kind of heat event. Right. And so it's important to know exactly how much heat there is. Every electrochemical reaction has a cathode and an anode. In this case, the cathode was palladium and the anode was platinum. Okay. They used heavy water. So this is deuterized water. Um, they use this in heavy water nuclear reactors. Sure. Um, it's expensive to get this stuff because mm -hmm. it, 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 deuterium naturally occurs in seawater, but extracting that from the regular water, that's where the money is. So they assemble this rig. Over 10 years, they're perfecting this rig. Uh, and in the, and in, when you get it all right, it's, you put heavy water in, you put in your anode and your cathode, seal the thing up with all your measurements instruments, and you start passing electricity through it. AC electricity, oscillating. Okay. For weeks. Ooh. Weeks. And within a few hours, the system levels off at about 30 degrees centigrade, you know, mm -hmm. warm, mm -hmm. but not hot, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. About 85 Fahrenheit. And then after weeks, and they were never sure exactly how long, sometimes it was a month, sometimes it was six weeks, that without any other inputs, the temperature jumps up to 50 degrees Celsius. Oh, that's a fair jump. It's not a huge jump. You're not boiling water. You're still half the temperature you need to boil water. Right. Right, you're like 108 or so. Some the high temperature phase can last for a couple of days, then it'll go away, and then it'll come back. They're not really sure why. It comes and it goes, and comes and it goes. But it, they consider that a very significant amount of heat. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, because they're on a shoestring budget, and because they're not nuclear physicists. They don't know an awful lot about how they believe it's fusion. And that concerns me because they say exactly that. We believe this is fusion. Why do you need to believe right. that? The Why don't you measure it? Because they don't know. Well, because they're not nuclear physicists. Right. And they don't. You know, and again, these are top guys in electrochemistry. So they know a lot about electrochemistry. Sure. But they don't know a lot about nuclear physics. Mm -hmm. Now, meantime, in the University of Utah... So same facility that Pons is in and Fletchman's hanging around there, having basically retired from Southampton and hang around there, is a fellow by the name of Stephen Jones. And Stephen Jones is a scientist researching muon-catalyzed fusion. No kidding. Right? Remember? Mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't so, that funny? Isn't that interesting? Interesting is right. So in 1988, before all this craziness goes down, Fleshman and Pons think they've got a machine that works. So they apply to the Department of Energy, which is responsible for basically all of the funding around nuclear research, especially for power production. In the United States or where? In, in the United States. Okay. That's the U.S. Department of Energy. They apply for funding. We've spent our own money. We think we have something here. We need some money. Now, the Department of Energy is a professional scientific organization, right? They don't fool around. Right. So they look for someone who can review the project and understand what's going on. Right. Guess who they pick? No. Stephen Jones. He's in Utah. He's a specialist in muon catalyzed fusion. He's actually a nuclear physicist. And he had published an article in 1987 in Scientific American entitled Cold Nuclear Fusion. Well, isn't that special? Isn't that interesting, right? <laughs> Not only that, but because he's a physicist 
and he's ex been experimenting with muon catalyzed fusion for a long time, he has instruments to actually measure fusion. Like, fusion doesn't hold up a little sign going, ooh, I had fusion. Mm. I feel good today. Right. Like, how do you know that fusion has occurred? <laughs> and in, in the physics world, it's the emission of gamma rays, the emission of neutrons, and transmutation. Okay? You made hydrogen into helium. Right. right. Or some other transmutation. We'll talk about a few transmutations before this hour is over. But in order to measure those things, you need instruments. Expensive instruments. The kinds of instruments that a $100,000 budget just don't have. Okay. All right. Yeah. But Jones, because he is a nuclear physicist doing research into fusion, had a neutron analysis equipment. So he could actually not only figure out that you had neutrons emitting, which, by the way, is radiation and is potentially lethal, um, but he could figure out where those neutrons came from based on their energy levels. Okay. And at the time, he offered to collaborate. So Fleshman and Pons and their team meet with Jones and his team. They're working on two different kinds interesting. of lo low-energy fusion reactions. What's interesting is that each of them is experts in their field, but probably more easily convinced about the other's convictions because of that the, they are only specialists in their field. Right. So probably easy to fool each other. Well, and again, I'm, I'm not going to cast intent here yet. Okay. But it gets uglier. Well, it's human nature. I mean, that's, but, that's kind of what I see coming anyway. When you find somebody else working on this, who's got tools you really need mm. and is a specialist in the area you're not in. Right. Wouldn't you think you'd want to collaborate with them? Sure. They refused categorically. Oh, okay. Fleshman and Pons would not work with Jones. All right. However, they realized that they both have papers coming up, right? They're both going to publish a paper on this. And again, why do scientists publish papers? It's how you get funding. That's right. And if you recall, this all the, these guys all got connected with each other because Fleshman and Pons were pursuing funding. Okay. So they agree on March 6th, 1989, mm -hmm. the teams meet and they agree to simultaneously publish their results in journals on March 24th, 1989. All right? Mm-hmm. Fleshman and Pons think they've solved the world's problems for power, and they want to get patents on this. This will make them fabulously wealthy. Right. And so they're, and the University of Utah is all about, we want this to happen here. They're super excited, and, you know, there's lots of pressure on them. So I don't know that this was Fleshman and Pons' idea, this was the university's idea, like who put the pressure on it. But the day before they were supposed to publish the paper, on March 23rd, 1989, they held a press conference. And talked about making sustained nuclear fusion reactions in a bottle. Mm -hmm. The press, oddly enough, goes nuts. Nuts is an understatement. Yes. Remember, this is 1989. Like the 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 oil crisis is just not that long ago, right? Right. And it, what's interesting is that me, little geeky kid, not really interested in the news, not interested in current events, not interested in science per se. I knew about it, and I was excited about it. Yeah. I mean, the press guys push these guys. I mean, mm. they're electrochemical scientists, right. right? They're not rock stars. They're not used to PR. They've spent years and years and years working on this, and they've done it in secret, which mm. I find deeply concerning mm -hmm. 
Because, re- you know, what keeps you sane is bouncing off other people on a regular basis. But there's so much at stake here. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Rossi is so crazy, too. Right. And we'll talk about him soon. Mm-hmm. But uh, is is that, you know, people want to keep it secret because it represents, like, you becoming the richest man in the world or a woman in the world. Don't you, Does it need to be that much? Do you really think uh, you're going to get nothing? I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Per- I'm definitely not condoning it and i'm certainly not taking that position i'm just saying that's the human nature side of it right that people tend to you know when when big things are at stake they tend to hold their cards close to themselves yeah yeah and it and and i think it's a mistake i think it is too especially for something that proves to be a catastrophic mistake here yeah and it already they have done some terrible things from a science perspective Mm. you were offered assistance and resources that would help you understand your project better and you refused them right you made an agreement with that scientist to publish together and you've now circumvented it right which is pretty gross and then the press just takes it into you know because it's deteriorized water that comes from seawater so what does the press turn this into unlimited power no byproducts comes from seawater the world has changed these guys are amazing right and it just explodes. And remember, they haven't published their paper yet. Right. It's all hearsay. Exactly. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You got it. Time to brush off my muons, cool off my isotope, stand up in my chair and scream, catalyze this. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's under that shirt. A few muons. Uh, just, my goodness. Uh, you didn't have no idea how many muons I got. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love it. It's time to give away a DevExpress D experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Before we mention who the winner is, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is a actually turns out to be a friend of ours, Jeff Hurst from Livingston, about 15 miles from Edinburgh, Scotland. Oh, wow. Congratulations, Jeff. And who knows? He might be in a different country pretty soon (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole other that's a whole other man we ought to do a show on that whenever that vote comes out (sighs) well then we got to go back and talk about quebec too i know that's crazy yeah hey if you don't know what we're talking about go to dotnet rocks.com click on the big get free stuff button answer a few questions and join the fan club we have thousands of members all over the world and every show we give away great stuff every december we give away $5,000 $5,000 worth of technology handpicked by one handpicked winner who <laughs> happens to be a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. So you got to join to win. And yes, I know some of those questions are a little out of date. Yeah. Yeah. We're, it's in the works. We're going to make a pass. Answer them anyway. It's the other questions we're really interested in. All right. So the press conference happens. The press has gone through the roof. Nobody has actually seen the papers yet. Scientists are not having a good time. Does the paper actually get published? Well, you know, let's talk about what it takes to publish a scientific paper. So you have to put together your notes, right? And and the whole point here is 
you're, you're talking about a set of experiments. Mm -hmm. So you put together your experiment that got your results and you put together all the counter experiments, right. the control experiments to show that we think, you know, it's all hypothesis. Correct. So you believe that the re interaction between heavy water and palladium creates heat. Yep. Well, then you change things, take out the palladium, take out the heavy water and, and run other experiments, right? And you get all of that research together and then you submit it to a scientific uh, journal who's then going to put it out to reviewers right who are they might now they're not necessarily going to run the experiments but they're going to make sure the thing's actually complete and it can take normally takes months months and months right to do this whole process which is one of the and remember they were just promising jones and and fleshman ponds had made this agreement that they were going to send the paperwork in to nature on the 24th it wasn't going to be published on the 24th. They were going to send it in and start the review process that probably would have run another six to nine months. Yeah. And then they did the press release, uh. right? The press conference instead. So now everybody wants everything right now. Right. Okay. And Jones, furious because he's been betrayed, let's face it, does send his paper into nature and start going through the process. So it turns out that Stanley Pons had a relationship, he had a good contact inside of the Journal of Electroanalytical Chemistry, which is top-tier journal about electrochemistry, uh -huh. and convinced him to expedite getting their paper published, which means minimal amount of review. There was just not time. There was not time, even when they got the reviews back and made revisions in relation to those reviews, they didn't send them back out to the reviewers to confirm them. They got the whole thing done in nine days. Wow. And they called it a preliminary note. The title of it is Electrochemically Induced Nuclear Fusion of Deuterium, published on April 10th, 1989. Okay. Okay. So that's fast. You know, that's two weeks after they did the press conference. They actually put it out. But it's not a properly reviewed paper. But the furor around it is such a big deal. It's incredible. And in that paper are a lot of interesting statements, including the fact that they believe they've measured gamma rays, even though they didn't actually have gamma ray measurement equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, so, that, And at the same time, you've got nuclear physicists looking at this paper. It would take another year for the real paper, the finished, reviewed, revised paper to come out. All right? Mm -hmm. But people aren't going to wait that long. So you got to think about the chaos that's going on right now, that power's completely changed. All of these people in the hot fusion world that spend hundreds of millions of dollars, they're wasting their time. <laughs> right. You know, why would we do this? Right. And a couple of electrochemists have taken this whole thing apart. I mean, I give you credit. There are a few scientists who actually said that. If these guys are right, we're about to eat a lot of humble pie. Right. And I would be happy for that to be true, but, you know... None of what we understand about atomic physics works this way. Uh-huh. So, uh, meantime, a whole bunch of universities and, and uh, labs start trying to build their own experiments. And when the paper comes out, it's got a minimal amount of explanation about how the experiments actually work, and there are no control experiments. 
Hmm. And and Fleischmann Pons has a set of theories, right? They, and they talk about the electrolytic forces, right? So you you put power in, and this is actually electrolyzing the heavy water, right? So the deuterium is being separated from the oxygen, huh? And the oxygen is going to escape from the bottle entirely, but the deuterium gets pulled into the palladium. This is what they believe it happens, and they've got some evidence this actually happens because the palladium actually grows. It gets about 15% bigger over that month that it's running. Mm-hmm. And their theory is that the lattice inside of the palladium is so tight that while the deuterium can go into it, remember palladium has this weird ability to allow hydrogen to go through it, deuterium's a bit bigger than regular monatomic hydrogen, it gets stuck inside the lattice. And over time, more and more of them get stuck until they get so close together, they're forced inside this lattice, they actually fuse together. Yeah, That's what they were proposing without having done or demonstrated control experiments and so on. Now, a lot of the groups that were building their own experiments based on that press conference didn't have any of the details of the experiment, so they were making their own. And needless to say, most of them got no results. <laughs> but they were publishing the fact that they had no results in April of 1989. Now, one of the things we know from them was that it took at least four to six weeks for anything to happen. So the idea that you see a press conference on March 23rd, 1989, and by the end of April, you're already saying, this is bunk. So are are you saying that there was a misunderstanding or a misstatement in the press conference that led people to believe that this thing was real or that they oh, misrepresented no, they were them in the press conference. Okay. This thing was real. So they misrepresented themselves. I don't know. They really believed that it worked. They had results that had worked, but they hadn't done quote good science. Right. Right. Now, one of the problems I think you have here is these are two of the top electrochemists in the world. Their beliefs and what they wanted it to be took over. I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think they understood electrolysis extremely well, mm. but they didn't understand nuclear physics very well. And if they had maybe just paired up with Stephen, mm-hmm. they might have had a different outcome. They might they have, might had have that. seen a little more. Yeah. But I think after you've put spent 10 plus years and your own money in secret, you know, the reality distortion field starts to build up around you. Right. And you just get sucked into this whole thing. Now, but... At the same time, you get this crazy pile-on effect. Reading the papers, reading the articles from April and May of 1989, it read like a Twitter storm. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that lady made an inappropriate comment on Twitter and then got on an airplane? And by the time she got off the airplane, she was fired? Yep. Right? I do. That sort of stuff. This was one of these crazy... And you could talk about a range of motivations for that. You know, basically indicting all of the fusion community when you're not a fusion specialist right. is a pretty stupid thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Right? And these, this is these guys living. Right. Right? And it's 1989. Let's not forget the context we're in. The Soviet Union's in the middle of unraveling. There was really no functional internet at that point. That nope. really didn't become popular till 94 or 93. Yeah. Mm. And... And you've got the world in the, you know, the Cold War is beginning to end, so budgets are going to start getting shuffled. There's a new president in. Like, scientists who make their living from government funding, 1989 is like one of the worst years you could possibly do that. You know the new president, it was uh, the first Bush, 
is going to change a bunch of stuff. You know the world's in flux. Well, yeah, and I think change is really what it's all about. That was a time of huge change, for better or for worse, when people were skittish about it. Scientists have mortgages, too. Right. So when something like this comes along that flies in the face of everything we currently know in 1989 about how atomic physics work, of course they're going to attack. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, can you blame them? And then to top it off, you have some pretty bad science practices here. Well, we have a lot more to cover here. So yes. we should probably get on to some of the other experiments that have, uh, shall we well, say, caught the press's attention. Let I want to leave ECAT to near the end because I want to set some context, okay? Right. Well, there because, are others, and this is what I'm talking about. There, how yes. many How many projects did, were you able to identify? Literally hundreds. Hundreds. Like, it's, everybody's actually quietly doing low-energy nuclear research these days. Yeah. Like, it's going on in a lot of places. And funding's starting to rev up. And one of the things that actually came out of 1989 is the Department of Energy mm-hmm. put out a letter that basically said, this is bunk. And they should receive, never receive public funding. Yeah. Which made, they called it pathological science. Yeah. Right. And so it literally was, this is now professional suicide for a scientist to say, I'm going to look into cold fusion. Yeah. If you did that, you are basically no longer a scientist. So it was incredibly destructive. And, and it made, and it, if there was something there, you just couldn't talk about it. That, and in 2004, the DOE was pushed 15, you know, 15 years later to actually review it again. And I've read the notes that the reviewers made. And for the most part, they just, you know, the funny thing here is because you've now poisoned this, yeah. you can't, no credible journal will publish a paper on it. Right. So 15 years later, when the DOE reviews it again, the reviewers say, well, there's no credible papers about this. So obviously it can't be anything. I'm like, you kind of created the conditions <laughs> where it could only be that. Yeah, that's right. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what you're saying here is this really had influence on all of these other following experiments. Yes. Because and, now and everybody's doing it in secret, right? And you, you create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Because you're not allowed to do it in public. You know, the whole reason I think that Fleshman Ponds went so far off the rails is they were doing work in secret. Yeah. And now you create a situation where you can only do the work in right. secret. You can't, you what don't, do you think's going to happen? You don't dare mention at the Rotary Club that you're working on cold fusion. Right. You don't dare. No. Because that would be crazy. That's crazy. But now you fast forward to current times. So imagine, I mean, they did that all on shoestring budget. Yeah. What if you had an unlimited budget? Yeah. What if you had millions? Yeah. Millions and millions of dollars to actually spend to really study this in detail? I think I'd go travel to the sun. <laughs> well, that's a heck of a good fusion reactor. In fact, near as I can tell, it's the only one that actually works. Did you ever see Richard Pryor impersonating the first man to walk on the sun? He's like, oh, ah, ee, oh, ah, ah, hot, 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 hot. Yeah. So, guess what? Yeah. It's been done. Uh, wh- the, what's, wait, 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 what's been done? High budget, serious public research into low energy nuclear reactions is being done today. All right, and this is not Rossi. This is somebody nope. else because he's kind of wacky. This is the Mitsubishi or Corporation has a research arm. Okay. Uh, so this is Japanese government funded. Okay. With real electrochemists and real nuclear physicists, very talented people. They're being attacked without a doubt, but we're talking about remar- and But it's real science. I've been reading a paper from March of this year. Okay. 
So 25 years after. Now, what's brilliant about the way, first off, they're not talking about making power. They're talking about transmutation. Okay. Okay. They call them the transmutation experiments. So get this. They built two different techniques for doing transmutation. They both use deuterium. All right. One is just deuterium gas under pressure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So no electrolysis at all. All right. They've also done the electrolysis experiments. Their secret sauce is a device they call a nanostructured membrane. So this is a metallic plate with a particular texture on it. And this plate is made up of very thin, like 20 to 40 nanometer thick layers hmm. of palladium and calcium oxide. Mm -hmm. And then they introduce another element on the pressure side. So you can imagine a pressure vessel. This plate's in the middle of it. On one side, you have a bunch of deuterium gas. And then you introduce another element like, say, cesium. Very common element, often used in atomic reactions. Right. And then you pump up the pressure. As you pump up the pressure, remember, palladium is permeable to hydrogen, right? right? Mm -hmm. So as that permeations are happening, transmutation reactions occur. Okay. So now these guys have a real budget. So they, they're they measuring neutrons, they're measuring gamma rays, they're using spectronomy to see the elements they're actually producing. And they turn cesium over a period of just a few days. Within a week or so, cesium becomes presidinium. Presidinium. The presidinium is a rare earth element. Okay. okay. And But as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, still is not productive. In other words, not useful because it requires more energy. Yeah. They're not even trying to make energy. But what I like about what Mitsubishi is doing is they're proving one core thing. Yeah which is you can use palladium and deuterium in a few different techniques to cause fusion. Right. They're fusing four protons and four neutrons onto cesium-133 to make it into presidinium-141. All right, so they're doing fusion. Yes. They're not, and, and they're working. not worried about power output. They are but again, fusing. And they're doing it with different elements, not just cesium. They've done it with strontium. They make strontium in the, into molybdenum. They make barium into samarium. Huh. They're making calcium. Calcium. You know, stuff in milk? Sure. Calcium into titanium. What? Yes. So this is true alchemy here. This is true alchemy. Now, they're only doing this in microgram quantities. It's not a lot of metal. Yeah. But it's happening. And they've noticed patterns. You can't just make anything into anything. Sure. Right? So when is, what's interesting about going from cesium to presidinium, it's four protons, four neutrons. Strontium-88 to molybdenum-96, four protons, four neutrons. Huh. Barium into samarium, six protons, six neutrons. Now, remember what's in a deuterium atom. It's a proton and a neutron, mm. right? Calcium to titanium is two protons, two neutrons. Tungsten, you know the metal tungsten? Sure. You can use this process to make tungsten into asinium and platinum. Wow. So that's pretty cool. It's repeatable, regular. Now, you want to know some weird stuff? Let me give you some weird stuff. The system must be kept cold under 50 degrees Celsius. Under 50 degrees Celsius? Yes. Wow. It stops working if it gets hot. So remember that whole thing about boiling water with this thing to make power? Yeah, it's not happening. So 120 degrees Fahrenheit or, or colder. Now, is there right. a cold limit too? They didn't, I didn't see that in the paper anywhere, but they just made this note that, hey, as this warms up, it stops working. So then, tr so actually cold fusion yes. is a reality. 
as a real thing Re- that is reproduced on a regular basis. And one of the big things that Fleshman Ponds got in trouble for is in their original paper that they rushed out in nine days, yeah. they talked about measuring gamma rays, even though they weren't really able to measure gamma rays. And the measurements they put on the gamma rays were incorrect. They were the wrong numbers for it to be atomic fusion. Okay. And then in their later paper, they corrected them incorrectly. Like they fudged the numbers and you could see it was fudged. Huh. All right. And then eventually in their, in their finished paper a year later, they took all of that out. The Mitsubishi folks are me- measuring gamma rays routinely, but they are gamma rays nobody's ever seen before. Okay. They don't measure up to any known atomic reaction. They're low powered. They're odd gamma rays, but they're real and they're repeatable. Wow. So. Wow. Maybe Fleshman Ponds had something, but they didn't have the gear and they didn't have the right mentality. They had problems with their egos to impair actually figuring all this out. But this group in, in Mitsubishi, and by the way, they've published proper papers with counter experiments, including using electrolysis to get similar results. Mm. And then handed all the paperwork over to, to the Toyota research group who have reproduced pieces of it. Well, this. there you go. So it's a real process that's going on. But again, not about making power, just showing that fusion actually exists at low energy. So this is baby steps here, and this is very, very encouraging, Richard. So if you wanted to take this to the next step, you know, what kinds of experiments would you do to inch forward closer and closer to power? Well, then there's an interesting question. Like every power system we've ever built counts on heat to boil water. Right. This is has to be kept cold. Yeah. So this may not be a useful path at all. The same way that muon catalyzed fusion is not a useful path because mm. fu- muons are so difficult to make. Mm. Mm. But the fact that fusion's go- fusion is a separate thing from making power. Right. And it just gets back to this idea that this is just fusion. It doesn't mean it makes electricity. Right, sure. All right. All right. We got to talk about Andrea Rossi. Andrea Rossi, okay. The ECAT. And people have already asked us about it. Yeah. You know. And just to be clear, Andrea Rossi is a convicted con artist. Right. Right? He has spent time in prison for lying about stuff and getting people to give him money yeah, for it. Yeah, that's right. So, so all you got to do is just Google Andrea Rossi, R-O-S-S-I, and read the stories. I'm looking at a Forbes magazine article from... Uh, May 20th, 2013 by Mark Gibbs. And this is the third article he wrote about Rossi. And, and the headline says, finally, independent testing of Rossi's ECAT cold fusion device. Maybe the world will change after all. And this just, <laughs> this is just typical of how much we want to believe that yes. this stuff works. However, there was a repeated experiment here that was verified by other people. We don't know essentially how much we can trust those other people, but yep. there are photos, there are videos. But it's always his gear, his control. Yeah. Nobody's allowed to see inside. That's right. He hasn't done the scientific thing and let somebody else build one to prove that it That's works. Right. All we have is this sort of independent test, but essentially... This is what it is. Here, I'll read from it. This is okay. this is how the actual test reactor called the ECAT-HT was described by the testers in this experiment as 
quote, a high temperature development of the original apparatus, which has also undergone many construction changes in the last two years. It is the latest product manufactured by Leonardo Corporation. It is a device allegedly capable of producing heat from some type of reaction, the origin of which is unknown. And so they describe the ECAT HT as a cylinder having a silicon nitrate ceramic outer shell, 33 centimeters in length and 10 centimeters in diameter. A second cylinder made of a different ceramic material, corundum, or corundum, I don't know how to pronounce that, but it was located within the shell and housed three delta-connected spiral wire resistor coils. This already sounds like Frankenstein, doesn't it? Yep. Resistors were laid out horizontally, parallel to, and equidistant from the cylinder axis, and were as long as the cylinder itself. They were fed by a TRIAC, T-R-I-A-C, all caps, power regulator device, Richard, what's that? Um, it's just a way of regulating power by doing oscillation. All right. Which interrupted each phase periodically in order to modulate power input with an industrial trade secret waveform. In other words, and then a miracle occurs. Right. This procedure needed to properly activate the ECAT HT charge had no bearing whatsoever on the power consumption of the device, which remained constant throughout the test. The most important element of the ECAT HT was lodged inside the structure. It consisted of an AISI 310 steel cylinder, 3 millimeters thick and 33 millimeters in diameter, housing the powder charges. Two AISI 316 steel cone-shaped caps were hot-hammered in the cylinder, sealing it hermetically. Here's the results, the two test runs. The present report describes the results obtained from evaluations of the operation of the ECAT HT in two test runs. The first test experiment lasting 96 hours from December 13, 2012 to December 17, 2012 was carried out by the first two authors of this paper, Levi and Fashi, while the second experiment lasting for 116 hours from March 18th to uh, March 23rd, 2013 was carried out by all the authors. The authors also note various assumptions they made about the test, and they weren't in control of all the aspects of the process, but they apparently didn't consider any of these to be egregious enough to be showstoppers. And now the big reveal, the author's conclusions are, quote, if we consider the whole volume of the reactor core and the most conservative figures on energy production, we still get a value of 7.93 plus or minus 0.8 times 10 to the second MJ per liter, that is one order of magnitude higher than any conventional source. Megajoule. Megajoule. So, and and I'm reading here, and we'll link this article. To put that in perspective, he's got a graph that plots peak power of various energy forms, uh, of various energy sources against their specific energy unit, uh, energy per unit mass. And gasoline is way out in front in terms of how much energy is available but if the paper is correct, you can make that gasoline was way out in front because, as can be seen, the ECAT has roughly four orders of magnitude more specific energy and three orders of magnitude greater peak power than gasoline. So he supposedly, Rossi, talked about what the actual reaction system was inside of it. He's doing, he's, he calls it nickel-hydrogen transmutation. Yeah. And so what he's saying is that nickel, which is atomic weight 28, is transmuted into copper, atomic weight 29, Mm. and the byproduct is heat. Mm. 
The problem is that's one of the most difficult transmutations you could ever do. Mm. So the likelihood that this is actually true is low. But one of the things he did in trying to prove people that, it, that this was real was he actually gave them samples of the nickel from before the run and then samples after the run where the nickel now had copper in it. So he may have transmuted nickel into copper. Right. Except that when you do, you know, for starters, we, we've talked about Mitsubishi actually doing transmutations. Right. And they always come in those interesting patterns of two proton, two neutron pairs, four proton, four neutron pairs, yeah. six proton, six neutron pairs. This is one proton, one neutron. Okay. Which is unlikely. Uh. Plus, when you transmute metal like that, you make a very unusual form of the metal because it tends to be a pure version. Uh-huh. Every kind of element has multiple isotopes. Right. Right? And if, for example, in nickel, there's five different isotopes. But for the bulk of them are just two. It's a ratio of 70 to 30 of two different isotopes mm -hmm. of nickel. So one of the ways you can figure out that you've got natural nickel is that it has that isotope ratio. Right. And the same is true of copper. Sure. Copper actually comes up in a pretty common ratio. The copper that was in natural copper comes up in that ratio. The copper that was in that sample was natural copper. It wasn't transmuted copper, which would be one isotope. So, also, bullshit. he said he had 10% of the uh, 10% of the metal, the nickel had been transmuted into copper. If you transmuted all of the nickel perfectly into copper, you only get about four and a half percent. So it's impossible what he's describing. There's no way. Okay. And of course, the other problem is you got to plug the thing in to get it started. Right. Right. Yeah. And he's actually done demonstrations where he got it running and then unplugged it and it ran unplugged for an hour. Yeah. If it was fusion, it would run for weeks. For, yeah, for a long, long time. Right. So, yeah, it's not real. It's not. Everything I've learned now makes helps me really understand there's no way this is real. Right. Now, what's interesting is this year, it's really last year, the DOEs revisited the concepts again, and they're starting to back off because DARPA, the, the research group for defense technologies, is starting to accept low energy nuclear research projects. Hmm. So the walls are starting to break down. The the pathological science side of this is starting to go away. And I think part of the reason is that we're when you think about stuff like graphene and generally the improvements we've made in material sciences in the past 25 years, our understanding of materials, yeah. this core idea that we can actually uh cause interesting behaviors in lattices are not that strange. Yeah. And this is not on what Mitsubishi is doing where they don't understand necessarily the science behind the experiment is not unprecedented. We still don't know why high temperature superconductors work. Right. Right. And that was 1986 that they actually started making these ceramic based superconductors that ran at much higher temperatures, liquid nitrogen temperatures. They still don't know why they work, but they can repeat the experiment. So in my mind, what Mitsubishi has demonstrated is you can repeatedly create an experiment using palladium and deuterium to create a fusion reaction. Does it make power? No, not yet. Maybe not ever, but it does work. Mm. Now we just have to understand why it works, and that would give us a better chance of being able to improve it further. And that's where we're going to have to leave it because, Absolutely. because that's the great play. That's the big question and the big unknown. That's where you kids can take over if you so choose to be as awesome as they are. Thank you, Richard. That's so great. Yeah, buddy. I'm, I'm glad to have this done. Yeah. And uh, I hope folks liked it. Please leave us comments. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear next, because there's more to come. Yeah.
All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a